Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and Chapter 26 from The House of a Thousand Candles by Meredith Nelson. Stay tuned for the conclusion of the story next week, Sunday. And now, Chapter 26 The Fight in the Library. They're coming faster this time, remarked Stoddard. Certainly. Their general's been cursing them right heartily for retreating without the loot. He wants his $300,000 autograph collection, observed Larry. Why doesn't he come for it himself, like a man? I demanded. Like a man, you say? ejaculated Larry. Faith, and you flatter that fathead. It was nearly eleven o'clock when the attacking party returned after a parley on the ice beyond the boathouse. The four of us were on the terrace, ready for them. They came smartly through the wood, the sheriff and Morgan slightly in advance of the others. I expected them to slacken their pace when they came to the open meadow, but they broke into a quick trot at the water tower and came toward the house as steady as veteran campaigners. "'Shall we try gunpowder?' asked Larry. "'Well, let them fire the first volley,' I said. "'They've already tried to murder you and Stoddard. I'm in for letting loose with the elephant guns.' "'protested the Irishman. "'Stand to your clubs,' admonished Stoddard, "'whose own weapon was comparable to the scriptural weaver's beam. "'Possession is nine points of the fight, and we've got the house.' "'Also a prisoner of war,' said Larry, grinning. "'The English detective had smashed a glass in the barred window of the potato cellar, "'and we could hear him howling and cursing below. "'Looks like business this time,' exclaimed Larry. "'Spread out now, and the first head that sticks over the balustrade gets a dose of hickory.' "'When twenty-five yards from the terrace, the advancing party divided, "'half halting between us and the water tower, "'and the remainder swinging around the house toward the front entrance. "'Ah, look at that!' yelled Larry. "'It's a battering ram they have. "'Oh, man of peace! "'Have I your majesty's consent to try the elephant guns now?' Morgan and the sheriff carried between them a stick of timber from which the branches had been cut, and with the third man to help, they ran it up the steps and against the door with a crash that came booming back through the house. Bates was already bounding up the front stairway, a revolver in his hand and a look of supreme rage on his face. Leaving Stoddard and Larry to watch the library windows, I was after him, and we clattered over the loose boards in the upper hall and into a great unfinished chamber immediately over the entrance. Bates had the window up when I reached him, and he was well out upon the coping, yelling a warning to the men below. He had his revolver up to shoot, and when I caught his arm he turned to me with a look of anger and indignation I had never expected to see on his colorless, mask-like face. That door was his pride, sir. It came from a famous house in England, and they're wrecking it as though it were common pine. He tore himself free of my grasp as the besiegers again launched their battering ram against the door with a frightful crash and his revolver cracked smartly thrice as he bent far out with one hand clinging to the window frame. His shots were a signal for a sharp reply from one of the men below, and I felt Bates start and pulled him in, the blood streaming from his face. It's all right, only a cut across my cheek. And another bullet smashed through the glass, spurting plaster dust from the wall. A fierce onslaught below caused a tremendous crash to echo through the house, and I heard firing on the opposite side, where the enemy's reserve was waiting. Bates, with a handkerchief to his face, protested that he was unhurt. "'Come below, there's nothing to be gained here,' and I ran down to the hall, where Stoddard stood, leaning upon his club like a Hercules, and coolly watching the door as it leaped and shook under the repeated blows of the besiegers. 
A gun roared again at the side of the house, and I ran to the library, where Larry had pushed furniture against all the long windows save one, which he held open. He stepped out upon the terrace and emptied a revolver at the men who were now creeping along the edge of the ravine beneath us. One of them stopped and discharged a rifle at us with deliberate aim. The ball snapped snow from the balustrade and screamed away harmlessly. "'Bah! Such monkeys!' he muttered. "'I believe I've hit that chap!' One man had fallen and lay howling in the ravine, his hand to his thigh, while his comrades paused, demoralized. "'Serves you right, you blaggard!' Larry muttered. I pulled him in, and we jammed a cabinet against the door. Meanwhile, the blows at the front continued with increasing violence. Stoddard still stood where I had left him. Bates was not in sight, but the barking of a revolver above showed that he had returned to the window to take vengeance on his enemies. Stoddard shook his head in deprecation. "'They fired first. We can't do less than get back at them,' I said, between the blows of the battering ram. A panel of the great oak door now splintered in, but in their fear that we might use the opening as a loophole, they scampered out into range of Bates's revolver. In return we heard a rain of small shot on the upper windows, and a few seconds later Larry shouted that the flanking party was again at the terrace. This movement evidently heartened the sheriff, for, under a fire from Bates, his men rushed up and the log crashed again into the door, shaking it free of the upper hinges. The lower fastenings were wrenched loose an instant later, and the men came tumbling into the hall. The sheriff, Morgan, and four others I'd never seen before. Simultaneously the flanking party reached the terrace and were smashing the small panes of the French windows. We could hear the glass crack and tinkle above the confusion at the door. In the hall he was certainly a lucky man who held to his weapon a moment after the door tumbled in. I blazed at the sheriff with my revolver as he stumbled and half fell at the threshold, so that the ball passed over him, but he gripped me by the legs and had me prone and half dazed by the rap of my head on the floor. I suppose I was two or three minutes at least getting my wits. I was first conscious of Bates grappling the sheriff, who sat upon me, and as they struggled with each other, I got the full benefit of their combined, swerving, tossing weight. Morgan and Larry were trying for a chance at each other with revolvers, while Morgan backed the Irishman slowly toward the library. Stoddard had seized one of the unknown deputies with both hands by the collar and gave his captive a tremendous swing, jerking him high in the air and driving him against another invader with a blow that knocked both fellows spinning into a corner. "'Come on to the library!' shouted Larry, and Bates, who had got me to my feet, dragged me down the hall toward the open library door. Bates presented at this moment an extraordinary appearance, with the blood from the scratch on his face coursing down his cheek and upon his shoulder. His coat and shirt had been torn away, and the blood was smeared over his breast. The fury and indignation in his face was something I hoped not to see again in a human countenance. "'My God, this room! This beautiful room!' I heard him cry as he pushed me before him into the library. "'It was Mr. Glenarm's pride,' he muttered, and sprang upon a burly fellow who had come in through one of the library doors and was climbing over the long table we had set up as a barricade. We were now between two fires. The sheriff's party had fought valiantly to keep us out of the library, and now that we were within, Stoddard's big shoulders held the door half-closed against the combined strength of the men in the hall. This pause was fortunate, for it gave us an opportunity to deal singly with the fellows who were climbing in from the terrace. Bates had laid one of them low with a club, and Larry disposed of another, who had made a murderous effort to stick a knife into him. I was with Stoddard against the door, where the sheriff's men were slowly gaining upon us. "'Let's go on the jump when I say three, said Stoddard, 
and at his word we sprang away from the door and into the room. Larry yelled with joy as the sheriff and his men pitched forward and sprawled upon the floor, and we were at it again in a hand-to-hand conflict to clear the room. "'Hold that position, sir!' yelled Bates. Morgan had directed the attack against me, and I was driven upon the hearth before the great fireplace. The sheriff, Morgan, and Ferguson hemmed me in. It was evident that I was the chief culprit, and they wished to eliminate me from the contest. Across the room, Larry, Stoddard, and Bates were engaged in a lively rough-and-tumble with the rest of the besiegers, and Stoddard, seeing my blight, leaped the overturned table, broke past the trio, and stood at my side, swinging a chair. At that moment, my eyes, sweeping the outer doors, saw the face of Pickering. He had come to see that his orders were obeyed, and I remember yet my satisfaction as, hemmed in by the men he had hired to kill me or drive me out, I felt, rather than saw, the cowardly horror depicted upon his face. Then the trio pressed in upon me. As I threw down my club and drew my revolver, someone across the room fired several shots, whose roar through the room seemed to arrest the fight for an instant. And then, while Stoddard stood at my side swinging his chair defensively, the great chandelier, loosened or broken by the shots, fell with a mighty crash of its crystal pendants. The sheriff, leaping away from Stoddard's club, was struck on the head and borne down by the heavy glass. Smoke from the firing floated in clouds across the room, and there was a moment's silence save for the sheriff, who was groaning and cursing under the debris of the chandelier. At the door, Pickering's face appeared again anxious and frightened. I think the scene in the room, and the slow progress his men were making against us, had half paralyzed him. We were all getting our second win for a removal of the fight, with Morgan in command of the enemy. One or two of his men, who had gone down early in the struggle, were now crawling back for revenge. I think I must have raised my hand and pointed at Pickering, for Bates wheeled like a flash, and before I realized what happened, he had dragged the executor into the room. "'You scoundrel! You ingrate!' howled the servant. The blood on his face and bare chest and the hatred in his eyes made him a hideous object, but in that lull of the storm while we waited, waiting for an advantage, I heard off somewhere, above or below, that same sound of footsteps that I had remarked before Larry and Stoddard heard it. Bates heard it, and his eyes fixed upon Pickering with a glare of malicious delight. "'There comes our old friend, the ghost,' yelled Larry. "'I think you are quite right, sir,' said Bates. He threw down the revolver he held in his hand and leaned upon the edge of the long table that lay on its side, his gaze still bent on Pickering, who stood with his overcoat buttoned close, his derby hat on the floor beside him where it had fallen as Bates had hauled him into the room. The sound of a measured step, of someone walking, of a careful foot on a stairway, was quite distinct. I even remarked a slight stumble that I would noticed before. We were all so intent on those steps in the wall that we were off guard. I heard Bates yell at me, and Larry and Stoddard rushed for Pickering. He had drawn a revolver from his overcoat pocket and thrown it up to fire at me when Stoddard sent the weapon flying through the air. "'Only a moment now, gentlemen,' said Bates, an odd smile on his face. He was looking past me toward the right end of the fireplace. There seemed to be in the air a feeling of something impending. Even Morgan and his men, half-crouching ready for a rush at me, hesitated, and Pickering glanced nervously from one to the other of us. It was the calm before the storm. In a moment we should be at each other's throats for the final struggle, and yet we waited. In the wall I heard the sound of steps, close to all of us now. We stood there for what seemed an eternity. 
I suppose the time was really not more than thirty seconds, waiting, while I felt that something must happen. The silence, the waiting, were intolerable. I grasped my pistol and bent low for a spring at Morgan, with the overturned table and wreckage of the chandelier between me and Pickering, and every man in the room was instantly on the alert. All but Bates. He remained rigid, that curious smile on his blood-smeared face, his eyes bent toward the end of the great fireplace in back of me. We'll return to our story right after this sponsor message. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com, and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. And now, back to our story. That look on his face held, arrested, numbed me. I followed it. I forgot Morgan. A tacit truce held us all again. I stepped back till my eyes fastened on the broad-paneled chimney-breast at the right of the hearth, and it was there now that the sound of footsteps in the wall was heard again. Then it ceased utterly. The long panel opened slowly, creaking slightly upon its hinges. Then down into the room stepped Marion Devereux. She wore the dark gown in which I had seen her last, and a cloak was drawn over her shoulders. She laughed as her eyes swept the room. "'Ah, gentlemen,' she said, shaking her head, "'as she viewed our disorder. "'What wretched housekeepers you are!' "'Steps were again heard in the wall, "'and she turned to the panel, "'held it open with one hand and put out the other, "'waiting for someone who followed her. "'Then, down into the room, stepped "'my grandfather, John Marshall Glenarm. "'His staff, his cloak, "'the silk hat above his shrewd face, "'and his sharp black eyes were unmistakable.' He drew a silk handkerchief from the skirts of his frock coat with a characteristic flourish that I remembered well and brushed a bit of dust from his cloak before looking at any of us. And then his eyes fell upon me. "'Good morning, Jack,' he said, and his gaze swept the room. It was Morgan, I think, who screamed, "'God help us!' as he bolted for the broken door, but Stoddard caught and held him. "'Thank God you're here, sir!' boomed forth in Bates' sepulchral voice. It seemed to me that I saw all that happened with a weird, unnatural distinctness, as one sees before a storm vivid outlines of far headlands that the usual light of day scarce discloses. I was myself dazed and spellbound, but I do not like to think, even now, of the effect of my grandfather's appearance on Arthur Pickering, of the shock that seemed verily to break him in two, so that he staggered then collapsed, his head falling as though to strike his knees. Larry caught him by the collar and dragged him to a seat, where he huddled, his twitching hands at his throat. "'Gentlemen,' said my grandfather, "'you seem to have been enjoying yourselves. Who is this person?' 
He pointed with his stick to the sheriff, who was endeavoring to crawl out from under the mass of broken crystals. "'That, sir, is the sheriff,' answered Bates. "'A very disorderly man, I must say. "'Jack, what have you been doing to cause the sheriff so much inconvenience? "'Didn't you know that the chandelier was likely to kill him? "'That thing cost a thousand dollars, gentlemen. "'You are expensive visitors. "'Ah, Morgan, and Ferguson, too. "'Well, well, I thought better of both of you. "'Good morning, Stoddard. "'A little work for the church militant? "'And this gentleman?' "'He indicated Larry, who was, for once in his life, speechless. Uh, "'Mr. Donovan, a friend of the house,' explained Bates. "'Pleased, I'm sure,' said the old gentleman. "'Glad the house had a friend. "'It seems to have had enemies enough,' he added dolefully, "'and he eyed the wreck of the room ruefully. "'The good humor in his face reassured me, "'but still I stood in tongue-tied wonder, staring at him. "'And Pickering!' John Marshall Glenarm's voice broke with a quiet mirth that I remembered as the preface usually of something unpleasant. "'Well, Arthur, I'm glad to find you on guard, defending the interests of my estate, at the risk of your life, too. Bates? Yes, Mr. Glenarm. You ought to have called me earlier. I really prized that chandelier immensely. And this furniture wasn't so bad.' His tone changed abruptly. He pointed to the sheriff's deputies one after the other with his stick. There was, I remembered, always something insinuating, disagreeable, and final about my grandfather's staff. "'Clear out!' he commanded. "'Bates, see these fellows to the wall. Mr. Sheriff, if I were you, I'd be very careful indeed what I said of this affair. I'm a dead man come to life again, and I know a great deal that I didn't know before I died. Nothing, gentlemen, fits a man for life like a temporary absence from this cheerful and pleasant world.' I recommend you try it. He walked about the room with a quick, eager step that was peculiarly his own, while Stoddard, Larry, and I stared at him. Bates was helping the dazed sheriff to his feet. Morgan and the rest of the foe were crawling and staggering away, muttering, as though imploring the air of heaven against an evil spirit. Pickering sat silent, not sure whether he saw a ghost or real flesh and blood, and Larry kept close to him, cutting off his retreat. I think we all experienced that bewildered feeling of children who were caught in mischief by a sudden parental visitation. My grandfather went about peering at the books with a tranquil air that was disquieting. He paused suddenly before the design for the memorial tablet, which I had made early in my stay at Glenarm House. I had sketched the lettering with some care and pinned it against the shelf for my more leisurely study of its phrases. The old gentleman pulled out his glasses and stood with his hands behind his back, reading— when he finished, he walked to where I stood. "'Jack,' he said. "'Jack, my boy.' His voice shook, and his hands trembled as he laid them on my shoulders. "'Marion!' he turned, seeking her, but the girl had vanished. "'Just as well,' he said. "'This room is hardly an edifying sight for a woman.' I heard for an instant a light hurried step in the wall. Pickering, too, heard that faint, fugitive sound and our eyes met at the instant it seized. The thought of her tore my heart, and I felt that Pickering saw and knew, and was glad. "'They've all gone, sir,' reported Bates, returning to the room. "'Now, gentlemen,' began my grandfather, seating himself, "'I owe you all an apology. 
This little secret of mine was shared only by two persons, and one of these was Bates. He paused as an exclamation broke from all of us, and he went on, enjoying our amazement. And the other was Marion Devereux. I'd often observed that at a man's death his property gets into the wrong hands, or becomes the bone of contention among lawyers. Sometimes, and at this the old gentleman laughed, an executor proves incompetent or dishonest. I was thoroughly fooled in you, Pickering. The money you owe me is a large sum, and you were so delighted to hear of my death that you didn't even make sure I was really out of the way. You were perfectly willing to accept Bates's word for it, and I must say, Bates carried it off splendidly. Pickering rose, the blood surging again in his face, and screamed at Bates, pointing a shaking finger at the man. "'You impostor! You perjurer! The law will deal with your case!' "'To be sure,' resumed my grandfather calmly, "'Bates did make false affidavits about my death. But, possibly, it was in a Pickwickian sense, sir,' said Bates, gravely. "'And in a righteous cause,' declared my grandfather. "'I assure you, Pickering, that I have every intention of taking care of Bates.' his weekly letters giving an account of the curious manifestation of your devotion to Jack's security and peace were alone worth a goodly sum. But, Bates... The old gentleman was enjoying himself hugely. He chuckled now and placed his hand on my shoulder. Bates, it was too bad I got those misses of yours all in a bunch. I was in a dahabier on the Nile, and they don't have rural free delivery in Egypt. Your cablegram called me home before I got the letters. "'But, thank God, Jack, you're alive.' "'There was a real feeling in those last words, "'and I think we were all touched by them.' "'Amen to that!' cried Bates. "'And now, Pickering, before you go, I want to show you something. "'It's about this mysterious treasure that has given you, "'and I hear the whole countryside so much concern. "'I'm disappointed in you, Jack, that you couldn't find the hiding place. "'I designed that as part of your architectural education.' "'Bates, give me a chair.' The man gravely drew a chair out of the wreckage and placed it upon the hearth. My grandfather stepped upon it, seized one of the bronze sconces above the mantel, and gave it a sharp turn. At the same moment, Bates, upon another chair, grasped the companion bronze and wrenched it sharply. Instantly some mechanism creaked in the great oak chimney breast, and the long oak panels swung open, disclosing a steel door with a combination knob. "'Gentlemen!' and my grandfather turned with a quaint touch of humor and a merry twinkle in his bright old eyes. "'Gentlemen, behold the treasury. It has proved a better hiding place than I ever imagined it would. There's not much here, Jack, but enough to keep you going for a while.' We were all staring, and the old gentleman was unfeignedly enjoying our mystification. It was an hour on which he had evidently counted much. It was the triumph of his resurrection and homecoming— and he chuckled as he twirled the knob in the steel door. Then Bates stepped forward and helped him pull the door open, disclosing a narrow steel chest, upright and held in place by heavy bolts clamped in the stone of the chimney. It was filled with packets of papers placed on shelves, and tied neatly with tape. "'Jack,' said my grandfather, shaking his head, "'you wouldn't be an architect, and you're not much of an engineer either, or you'd have seen that paneling was heavier than was necessary.' There's $200,000 in first-rate securities. I vouch for them. 
"'Bates and I put them there just before I went to Vermont to die. "'I've sounded those panels a dozen times,' I persisted. "'Of course you have,' said my grandfather. "'But solid steel behind wood is safe. "'I tested it carefully before I left.' "'He laughed and clapped his knees, and I laughed with him. "'But you found the door of bewilderment and Pickering's notes, "'and that's something.' "'No, I didn't even find that. "'Donovan deserves the credit. "'But how did you ever come to build that tunnel, "'if you don't mind telling me?' "'He laughed gleefully. "'That was originally a trench for natural gas pipes. "'There was once a large pumping station "'on the site of this house, "'with a big trunk running off across the country "'to supply the towns west of here. "'The gas was exhausted, "'and the pipes were taken up before I began to build. "'I should never have thought of that tunnel "'if the trench hadn't suggested it. "'I merely deepened and widened it a little, "'and plastered it with cheap cement as far as the chapel, "'and that little room there where I put Pickering's notes "'had once been the cellar of a house "'built for the superintendent of the gas plant. "'I had never any idea that I should use that passage "'as a means of getting into my own house. "'But Miriam met me at the station, "'told me that there was trouble here, "'and came with me through the chapel into the cellar, "'and through the hidden stairway that winds around the chimney "'from that room where we keep the candlesticks.' "'But who was the ghost?' I demanded. "'If you were really alive and in Egypt.' Bates laughed now. "'Oh, I was the ghost. "'I went through there occasionally "'to stimulate your curiosity about the house. "'And you nearly caught me once. "'One thing more, if we're not wearing you out, "'I'd like to know whether Sister Teresa owes you any money.' "'My grandfather turned upon Pickering with blazing eyes. "'You scoundrel! "'You infernal scoundrel!' "'Sister Teresa never borrowed a cent of me in her life. "'And you made war on that woman!' "'His rage choked him. "'He told Bates to close the door of the steel chest "'and then turned to me. "'Where are those notes of Pickering's?' he demanded, "'and I brought the packet. "'Gentlemen, Mr. Pickering has gone to ugly lengths in this affair. "'How many murders have you gentlemen committed?' "'We were about to begin the actual killing when you arrived,' "'replied Larry, grinning.' "'The sheriff got all his men off the premises, more or less alive, sir,' said Bates. "'That's good. It was all a great mistake, a very great mistake.' And my grandfather turned to Pickering. "'Pickering, what a contemptible scoundrel you are! I lent you that three hundred thousand dollars to buy securities to give you better standing in your railroad enterprises. And the last time I saw you—' "'You got me to release the collateral "'so you could raise money to buy more shares. "'Then, after I died,' he chuckled, "'you thought you'd find and destroy the notes, "'and that would end the transaction. "'And if you'd been smart enough to find them, "'you might have had them and welcome. "'But as it is, they go to Jack. "'If he shows any mercy on you in collecting them, "'he's not the boy I think he is.' "'Pickering rose, seized his hat, "'and turned toward the shattered library door.' He paused for one moment, his face livid with rage. "'You old fool!' he screamed at my grandfather. "'You old lunatic! I wish to God I'd never seen you. No wonder you came back to life. You're a tricky old devil, and too mean to die.' He turned toward me with some similar complaint ready at his tongue's end, but Stoddard caught him by the shoulders and thrust him out upon the terrace. A moment later we saw him cross the meadow, and hurry toward St. Agatha's. Thanks for joining us as we near the completion of the House of One Thousand Candles. Next week, 
the final two chapters, 27 and 28, and the conclusion of our story. We'll return next week Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.